Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week ending Friday the 13th of October, a week in which we have learned more about Hamas's invasion of Israel on October the 7th. The terrorist attacks some are calling 10-7, Israel's 9-11. And here in the Tortoise Newsroom, we're trying to understand, understand exactly what happened and how, what it means, where next. So from Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. President Biden was absolutely correct in calling this sheer evil. Israel insisted again today that its airstrikes on Gaza are aimed at Hamas targets. 338,000 people have now been forced to flee their homes in Gaza, and food, fuel and water are urgently needed. The situation is just crazy. Every minute that passes, the situation just gets worse and worse. There is no words to describe what's happening. I'm joined by Tortoise's news editor, Jess Winch. Jess, thank you for joining us. It's been a busy week. Hello. And I'm really grateful to Shina Lowe, who is joining us from the Norwegian Refugee Council. I know, Shina, there is a great deal that you're doing. Uh, You're based in Jerusalem, but obviously you've got a team in Gaza. So thank you for making the time to join us. Happy to be here. And then Lawrence Friedman. um, Professor Friedman, I have to say, I think there's a bug in the system when uh, we end up talking. It always seems to be about things that are calamitous, whether it's been Iraq or Afghanistan. Indeed. It's the story of my life, sadly. Those people who followed your work um, will know that you're the person that we turn to to try and understand war. uh, And in a non-historic context, um, you're the Professor of War Studies, of course, at King's College in London. uh, And... um, written the book Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. So thank you for making the time to join us. I'll tell you what we hope to do in the course of this news meeting. We're going to try and chronicle what happened and then try and understand the options that Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu now considers in response. 
also try to understand what now, particularly for the civilian residents in Gaza, as they prepare for Israel's military action to try and recover hostages and destroy Hamas. And on that point, I'd also like to take a few moments just to deal with what I think is the BBC's dangerous and self-harming mistake in trying to justify not using the word terrorist to describe Hamas. So I hope we're going to get a chance to discuss all of those things. I should say that we ended Monday's episode with two things that we just didn't know. Uh, We didn't know, one, the extent to which Iran was involved, and the other was, of course, how Israel's prime minister, Netanyahu, was going to frame this war. I think we understand a little more of both of those things now, and I'm going to put some of that to you, Lawrence, in a moment. But Jess, will you just start us just by giving us some sense of where we are as we come towards the end of this week, what we now understand has happened? Sure. So just to go through a few developments that we know of since the last episode on Monday. First, the scale of the attack on Saturday has become a lot clearer. When we recorded on Monday, I think we were getting reports that one massacre had taken place at a music festival that now turns out to be one of many uh, in places like Faza, uh, which we saw reports from uh, journalists that were taken there on Tuesday and Wednesday. We know that around 1,200 people have been killed, including men, women, children and the elderly. Around 150 people have been taken hostage. People from 36 countries have either been killed or taken hostage. Uh, it's worth pointing that out as well. And we also know a little bit more about what is unfolding in Gaza. Israel has responded with thousands of air and artillery strikes. Around 1,300 Palestinians have been killed, 6,000 injured, uh, and I believe over 200,000 have now had to leave their homes and go to places like UN schools. But there are conversations ongoing about whether or not they can leave. There's Jake Sullivan, the US National Security Advisor, was talking about a possibility of a safe passage through Egypt. Uh, Egypt is reportedly resisting that option. And the only power plant in Gaza ran out of fuel on Wednesday. So currently, uh, the Gaza Strip is without electricity. Uh, It is without supplies of food and water and medicine after a siege that has been imposed by Israel. And we are in a moment where we feel as though a ground invasion is imminent. Could happen possibly over the coming days. We've got around 360,000 reservists that have been called up and are kind of grouping on the border. There's been a very strong show of support from the US and from all over the world, but a a particularly emotional, I felt, speech from Joe Biden earlier this week uh, saying we stand with Israel. He has sent his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, who is in the country on Thursday. And Netanyahu has now managed to form a unity emergency government to sort of navigate through the next steps. Jess, thank you. Shina, I know that there are NRC staff working in Gaza. The reality is that even given brave journalists trying to get a sense of what's happening there, the picture is still pretty patchy and partial. What is your understanding, particularly of the position of civilians living in Gaza now? Netanyahu has said, leave. Can they? Thank you, James. So we at NRC have the Norwegian Refugee Council have 52 Palestinian staff on the ground in Gaza, uh, Most of them are, many of them are displaced. All of them are fearful for their lives. We heard Netanyahu say over the weekend that that Palestinians in Gaza civilians needed to leave. The question is where to? 
I mean, there's no safe space in Gaza right now. We're hearing reports from our colleagues of civilians who fled areas th that they lived thinking that they would be bombarded only to be killed in airstrikes in the places in which they had sh sought shelter. Uh, there's no, uh, my understanding is that there's been very limited, if any, ability for people to flee through the Rafah crossing in, uh, into Egypt. And we're also mindful of the fact that 70% or more of Palestinian residents in Gaza are themselves refugees or the descendants from 1948. And we're very fearful that um, if, if there's mass exodus from Gaza into Egypt, that those uh, Palestinians fleeing for their lives would be uh, permanently displaced, as we've seen from 1948. And, Shana, I want to hear what you think happens when Israel responds. But I'm going to ask Lawrence Friedman just to give a sense of what that response might be, because obviously Gazans will respond differently depending on Netanyahu and his new government's decision. What do you expect that to be, Lawrence? I'm very wary of making predictions at the moment. I mean, first, Anthony Blinken, when visiting, made clear there is American concern about the level of casualties in Gaza. And I think you're starting now to see uh, the caution coming into the support for Israel uh, in, in terms of you've got to think about what the consequences for civilians. The big issue, as Jess mentioned, is is whether there's going to be a ground invasion. One feeling is because of the unity or emergency government has been formed with two chiefs of staff, former chiefs of staff now on the security cabinet, that that paves the way. And there's talk of it happening next week and possibly lasting for a month if it happens. I still think Netanyahu will be wary about a land invasion. Um, that it carries enormous risks. You've still got the question of the hostages, and you know the, we've been here before. That Israel has gone in to Palestinian territory, done damage, taken casualties, and it's not clear how the situation has improved at the end of it. But the, clearly the feeling in Israel is that something strong has to be done. So that puts them under a lot of pressure. So at the moment, I think we're, we're, we're on the edge on that, more likely than not. But it, it's not definite yet. But, but Lawrence, you've written this really interesting piece on Hamas attacks Israel. And it's got, mm. if you like, actually quite a surprising analysis of the limits on Israel's response. Can you just talk through what you think those are? Because I appreciate not making a prediction, but you are framing things differently from the way in which many people instinctively think that Israel will respond. Well, I think I mean, the, the, the limits on, on what Israel can do are, first, it has to be concerned about the hostages. Uh, I mean, the, the, there's obviously divided opinion in, in the Israeli government about that. Secondly, it really has to be worried about creating such a storm that Hezbollah joins in. I, I, I don't believe that's likely, but it's certainly something that, that can't be ruled out and they've been exchanging shots. There's also the question of keeping things contained on the West Bank. But also, uh, and I think every day that passes this becomes more true, Hamas 
will be prepared. There'll be ambushes. The leadership group, some of which has been hurt by the the, the raids uh, and the shelling, the leadership group will disperse. Um, they'll be hard to find. They're still, at the moment, still sending rockets over. So I'm I'm, I'm just sceptical about what it can achieve. And then if you do get in and, and you do achieve your military objectives, how long do you stay? Israel just doesn't have the capacity to occupy Gaza. Just doesn't have the capacity. So these are the reasons why I'm a bit cautious. I think they may do sort of more of a raid than than a full uh, full scale invasion. That's one possibility. But it just has to be recognised there are no good options for Israel at the moment. Shina, I'm embarrassed to ask this because. I've been to Gaza a couple of times. I like to think that I try and follow what's happening in Israel, in the West Bank, in Gaza. But one of the things I really don't understand is where Hamas ends and the Palestinian population of Gaza begins, how embroidered Hamas is into the life and society of the 2.3 million people who live in Gaza. What's your read on that? I think the majority of people in Gaza just want to live ordinary lives. There are people, I mean, you have 2.3 million people who've been living under a 16-year Israeli siege. They are struggling to make ends meet. There's a near, prior to this week's events, there was a nearly 50% unemployment rate inside of Gaza. So you have just ordinary people who have nothing to do with politics, who are just trying to have decent lives for themselves and their families. And now they're, they're, they don't even have the time right now to think about this week's of the events that have transpired this week because they're just worried about keeping their families and their children safe and making sure that they have food and water and the necessary provisions that they need. They, From what I'm hearing from our staff on the ground, there isn't capacity for the majority of, of ordinary citizens or residents who are just trying to survive at this point. Lawrence, one of the things that's striking to me about the piece that you wrote is the comparisons you made with 1973, the aftermath of the Second Intifada, the pattern in which Israel's military activity was followed by bouts of diplomacy, efforts in which after the fighting, in effect, there was an attempt to come to a more stable, ideally peaceful settlement. What are the contours of that? Because one of the things I think I find most frightening now is thinking, I can't quite see what the shape of the Israeli debate is. If you like, for the better part of a quarter of a century, it's been two-state solution on the one hand or status quo on the other. It seems neither of those are particularly tenable right now. So what's the post-military action framework, do you think, for Israelis now? I think... One of our difficulties is we've talked about the Palestinian problem as a single problem. Mm. Gaza and the West Bank and Jerusalem are very different. Gaza, and, and you know, one of the things that's happened since 2006-07 uh, is that Gaza has been under the control of Hamas, where before the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization had a big presence, but doesn't have it anymore after a civil war. Equally, in uh, in the West Bank, Hamas doesn't have a presence some people say that Hamas is more popular in the West Bank and the PLO might be more popular in Gaza. So the two separate uh, situations. Hamas has never, ever been interested in a peace settlement with Israel. It doesn't like the idea of a two-state solution. When the Oslo negotiations 
post-Oslo negotiations were underway. It had bomb attacks and so on and designed to disrupt them. So Israel basically put up a fence, pulled out its settlers and let them get on with it. It's not interested in Gaza desperately. It just doesn't want them to do what, what they did at the last weekend. West Bank and Jerusalem is far more difficult, far more complex. That's where, if you're talking about a two-state solution, it could have real meaning. But uh, the government of Netanyahu is, uh, is dead set against that. And it includes characters who are pushing hard for ever more encroachments on Palestinian territory. The big uh, debate that's going to take place uh, when we look at the post-mortem on this is how much effort was being devoted to protecting extremist settlers uh, and others that meant there was very little left to look after the South. Uh, some polling has just come out which, which shows complete loss of confidence in the Netanyahu government. I mean, it'll be restored a bit by, by Benny Gantz joining, but uh, this is a massive failure that, that will have an effect. So that affects the post-war diplomacy, if we can think ahead, because the right, in a way, has discredited itself through this. Um, at a time where, when arguments to be nice to the Palestinians are not, not also not at their strongest. Lawrence, let's come back to Netanyahu and the politics of Israel in a moment. Um, but Shaina, I appreciate you've got a, a lot on and you're going to have to disappear in a moment. But I just wondered whether you can help understanding one thing. Egypt. A lot of people look at Gaza and think, surely there is some mechanism here, given that Gaza borders Egypt, to protect the civilians of Gaza by partnering in some form or other with the Egyptian government. Is that the case? And if not, why not? I mean, we're already seeing discussions about using Egypt and the Rafah crossing as a means of bringing in, as of creating a humanitarian corridor in which to bring supplies and aid and assistance um, to, to civilians who are in need. I think we're uh, reticent to call for Palestinians in Gaza to, to flee to Egypt for safety because one, they don't want to, and two, there's fear that there would be um, mass dis- mass permanent displacement, um, uh, and and for many and for Palestinians, obviously, this is something that is very close to home. As I said earlier, seventy percent of the population of the Gaza Strip are refugees and their descendants, and and they do not want to leave to got to to Egypt. Many of them do not want to leave to Egypt for fear of being permanently displaced. I think we need to be looking at Egypt in terms of humanitarian corridors. We need the international community to be pushing for humanitarian pauses so that uh, humanitarian organizations can get in, can uh, assess what type of needs there are and distribute aid accordingly. And I'm certain that Egypt will be essential to providing that type of of assistance um, and and gaining access to the civilian population in Gaza. It's one of those incredibly difficult moral, real-world choices, that one that says, don't evacuate people into Egypt because there's a risk of permanent displacement, or, of course, if they're not evacuated, there's a real risk of very, very high civilian casualties and deaths. Egypt doesn't want them. Yes, uh, that too. I mean, that's also part of the problem. Also, mm. you've got to remember that Hamas 
um, is a growth out of the Muslim Brotherhood, which are President Sisi's main um, political enemies. So he displaced the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt. Mm. Um, that's why there's been an Egyptian blockade as well as an Israeli blockade. Mm. Um, one of part of Hamas's problems problems is they don't have very many friends in the region. Um, mm. uh, and uh, Shana explains that the, the, the people of Gaza suffer from this. There's, there's plenty of evidence that most people in Gaza wanted the ceasefire to hold. Uh, and and if I may just jump in, I I think we need to allow that there are some Palestinians from Gaza that would want to seek safe passage to Egypt. And if that's the case, then of course they should be permitted to go there. They should be able to seek shelter and safety. But there should be provisions and guarantees by third states that those people should be allowed to return and able to return once the hostilities have ended. The important thing is that Palestinian civilians in Gaza are given the choice to to decide whether they want to stay or whether they want to leave. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be calling first and foremost for the establishment of safe zones that are protected within Gaza, but also allow for Palestinians who are trying to flee and who are making that choice to flee to be able to seek safety with reassurances that they would be able to return home once the hostilities have ended. Shaina, thank you. I appreciate that you have more important things to do. So I really want to make sure that you can get away and do those things. But um, we really appreciate you giving us the time to be here and also just giving us the perspective of what the Norwegian Refugee Council is doing on the ground in Gaza. Thank you. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Lawrence, can I just come back to you? Because we started a little bit down the road on Netanyahu and the government of national unity and bringing Benny Gantz in. Is Netanyahu finished? I mean, I I wouldn't invest in him at the moment. I I think he's... um, uh, I mean, there's some major policy failures here. Uh, there's an intelligence failure which will be gone into, um, and you will have seen stories that uh, the Egyptians tried to warn him. I think the the, the 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 answer to that is yes. They knew that Hamas might try. They knew that Hamas might try something, but they thought that something would be just lots of rockets. They didn't imagine what was going to happen. But the policy failure is that there were insufficient uh, troops um, 
in the in the in the south. It took a long time for those uh, that were were required to get there, um, and the country had been divided. I mean, this was a divided country. So I think uh, on the polling at the moment, people want an election as soon as this is over, and I think they would vote Netanyahu out. Um, this may change, but that's where we are now. Does that, in your mind, then affect how Netanyahu manages the response to the attacks and manages the war if he thinks he's heading as soon as it is finished for an election that he will lose? I think it does, but I mean, that's why it was important, I think, to get Benny Gantz in, uh, because he's now going to be an important uh, counter uh, in the... um, in the war capital, he's, he's no ex, he's no uh, amazing moderate guns, and you can take quite strong lines himself on this. But he does understand the military realities in a way that Netanyahu may not. I think one of the things that worried me is um, the understandable but exaggerated language um, that that comes out about what's going to be done to Hamas. It's it's, it's extremely difficult to eliminate a group like this. Um, and so, actually, he may be setting himself up for, an, for a further fall, because having said that these things are going to happen and that, and that this uh, Hamas will be uh, eliminated, mm. may not be crushed, um, no non-left standing. I mean, th- this is very uh, unwise language. I mean, it may not happen. Can I just take a detour just for a minute or two? I know there's a tendency in the media to talk about itself when terrible things happen. So I don't want to overplay this argument about the BBC's insistence that it doesn't call Hamas terrorists. But you might have seen Lawrence John Simpson um, address this issue directly in a video. You know, he argued that the BBC doesn't take sides. It doesn't stand in judgment in its reporting. And so even though governments might designate Hamas as a terrorist organisation, the BBC won't. You know, I'm sort of pausing before getting into it because it's hard to think of anyone who's given more of their life, in fact, on occasion risked their life for the BBC than John. You know, he has been an incredibly courageous and long-standing international affairs editor for the BBC. Uh, And I only worked there for five years running BBC News. But I have to say respectfully, but quite strongly, I disagree with him. And I just wondered what you think of that decision in terms of use of language. I mean, the language here is very dif- is very difficult because everybody calls the people who are annoying them terrorists. The Russians call Ukrainian terrorists, for example. So I prefer to call groups by their names um, and refer to their political uh, composition and what they uh, are trying to achieve. They then can engage in terrorist acts. So what happened was terrorism. Um, I don't think you can... You need to find uh, another word. And when they were doing it, they were terrorists. Mm. Uh, if they were fighting the IDF, you might want to find another word to describe them. So um, I, think it's, I think it's unfortunate to get bogged down in this. I don't think it's anything to do with neutrality. I think it, it's about the danger of just uh, uh, not actually looking at these groups and what they're about and what they say they're about. Uh, and I'm trying to understand them on their own terms. Um, but while you do that, you, you, you don't have to 
uh, Rizal from describing these acts, which is which is what they were. They were terrorist acts. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree. Just you have a view on it. Yes, I think my take on it is just I agree with Lawrence that the the best way to do it is to describe the group in and of itself and then describe what they do accurately. My frustration with the story this week has been that there has been this huge story unfolding in Israel and Gaza, and yet you look at the papers sometimes in the UK and they're talking about the royal family and the BBC. And I would I would rather keep the story focused on Israel and where, where it is all actually happening on the ground. For what it's worth... I think the BBC's insistence on defending its decision not to use the word terrorists to describe Hamas is wrong because, firstly, it's inaccurate. You can spend 15 minutes on the BBC website and you're going to find the BBC referring to al-Qaeda as terrorists, to Islamic State as terrorists, to the IRA as terrorists. In fact, you can find John Simpson uh, using the word terrorists and terrorism and describing individuals from those organizations as terrorists. But I also think it's bad journalism because I think our job is not to censor language and cross out words. It's to use language and words to describe accurately and meaningfully what's happening in the world. And Hamas's kidnapping, beheadings, indiscriminate murder of civilians was intended to create terror. It was an act of terrorism. They have acted and are terrorists. And our job as journalists is to report, is not to equivocate. And then I think it's dangerous because in the end, it enables a kind of equivalence. And it means that people don't really understand what actually happened. And then they don't have the context for understanding uh, what happens next. And I also should say as someone who loves and believes in the BBC that I think it's unnecessarily damaging to the BBC because the BBC's tied itself in knots over this issue. You know there are plenty of producers and presenters and editors who think it's the wrong position to take. And so in the end, those people who love to give the BBC a kicking at any invitation are going to pile in on this. And the BBC could and should just say, actually, you know what, sorry, we've got this wrong. Of course Hamas are terrorists. We're going to make that clear in our coverage. And so the BBC can get on with reporting the story rather than becoming a marginal part of it. So for what it's worth, I I think there's a change they could and should make there. Um, Lawrence, we're going to end, if I might, just where we started with things we don't know now. Jess, what's on your list of things we need to know now? We have no idea, and I think this is important, the... Um the actual scope of what Netanyahu's government intends to do in Gaza. I think that's important to try and for them to define before they go in, uh, as has been said. We don't know what the risk is of the uh, violence spreading. Um, we've mentioned earlier that perhaps Hezbollah, there's been some artillery fire back and forth. That's, I think, definitely seen as a risk. The US has moved a carrier group into the eastern Mediterranean as a deterrent for precisely that reason. Uh, we still don't know to what degree Iran was involved. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the U.S. national security advisor, said that while Iran's influence is sustained, dark and deep because of their longstanding backing for Hamas, that currently there's no evidence directly linking them to the attack. So I think that's still an area of inquiry. And honestly, the only thing I feel 
clear on is I, I think is is how how many more people may die, um, and uh, my hope would be that steps are taken to try and minimise civilian casualties as far as possible. Lawrence, things you don't know now. Well, that's a pretty good list. Um, I think um, we don't know a lot about what's going on diplomatically. Um, there's, there's lots of conversations going around. Blinken was going to talk to the Palestinian leadership as, uh, in the West Bank as well as uh, to Netanyahu. Um, the Egyptians, the Qataris, tend to play roles in this. Uh, others have been uh, having their say. Uh, I think uh, I think there will be an enormous diplomatic effort developing around this. Um, and Israel can't wholly ignore that. The, the, the difficulty is um, the, because Hamas acted in the way it did right at the start, um, there's very little sympathy or trust um, in what Hamas says or does. You know, the, the, there was a ceasefire agreed. There were things that were going on to try to improve the economic position of Gaza, and these were used as a cover to mount these attacks, uh, and that is going to limit the possibilities of, of deals with Hamas. One thing I find I keep thinking about is that it's Israel's 9-11, that 10-7 idea, not just in the shock and the grief, but also the way it reverberates in other places in ways that you don't immediately see. I find myself thinking, so if you're Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, what do you do now? If you're Sisi in Egypt, what do you do now? If you're Trump looking at the US presidential election, does this play for you in 2024? It just feels to me as though it reverberates in so many places and we don't yet know. It's always the unintended consequences or the unexpected effects that can turn out to be most important. All one can note on the Trump point is he's made some even more bizarre comments uh, about what's happened and, and who's to blame than, than is normal even for him. So <laughs> yeah. uh, 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 that, that, that's what... I think the, the Arab governments um, are watching. I don't think... Uh, I don't think they feel uh, obliged to come in on behalf of Hamas. Um, I don't think they feel obliged to come in on behalf of Israel. I think they're, they're, they're watching. The, the ones who are most engaged are Egypt and Qatar. Um, and uh, they, they're, they're the ones to look at to see if anything significant is going on. But I think what you just said there is very significant, isn't it, Lawrence? Because the idea of the Arab states not weighing in on behalf of the Palestinians, not lining up with Hamas, changes the dynamic and changes the calculation over time for the Palestinians themselves. It does. I mean, you know, they blame Israel for the way that the Palestinians have been treated. I mean, the Saudis have never suggested anything else, but they don't actually have a lot of sympathy for the Palestinians. Professor Lawrence Friedman, on that historic and extremely helpful note, thank you very much. Jess Winch, thank you too for joining us. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. Um, Shiners uh, had to head off. Most importantly, thank you for listening. I know that this week we've done something different with the news meeting. We haven't sort of pitched in and kicked news stories around. It's felt as though something far more significant and with far deeper repercussions is happening. So I hope it's been helpful trying to work through with us what's happening 
what's really happening and what that might mean next. We hope you have a good and peaceful weekend on behalf of all of us working at Tortoise and look forward to next week when I'm sure we'll come back to this story and I hope others too. Thank you for listening. Tortoise. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm.